The Federal Trade Commission has filed a civil complaint alleging unfair or deceptive acts by Beam Financial, a San Francisco startup behind a savings app that purported to offer above market interest rates on federally insured deposits. So as CNBC first reported in October, dozens of Beam customers complained that they were unable to access their funds, in some cases for months. The complaint filed in federal court in San Francisco on Wednesday accuses Beam and its founder, 37-year-old Yanan Aaron Du, of misleading its customers by claiming they will have 24-7 access to their funds with no lockups. Which you already got a question because this isn't cryptocurrency. There's not like a 24-7 access mode. Like even if you have like a normal bank account, right? Like a legitimate, you know, brick and mortar bank account. It still takes time to process transactions, right? So this is already a red flag. Instead, the complaint says customers who have attempted to withdraw money are given the runaround. In light of this, many consumers have complained that defendants have simply stolen their deposits, the complaint says. Some consumers have highlighted that they have experienced particularly serious hardship because defendants have not returned their money during an ongoing pandemic. In a statement, the FTC said Beam misled users about access to their funds. Beam Financial promised convenient 24-7 access to savings but then people had to wait weeks or months to get their money, said Andrew Smith, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. The complaint seeks unspecified relief for Beam's customers, as well as an injunction barring the company in due from further violations. The complaint also says Beam has failed to deliver on his promise to pay high interest rates, including a base rate as high as 1%, and in fact, the complaint says new customers currently receive a rate closer to 0.04%, similar to what they would receive in a traditional bank account. So really, this is... This is really depressing for like I can see how this is like really really depressing for the customers who are dealing with this situation because you got to think about it right because they misled you they said that oh we offer amazing interest rates we offer convenient twenty four seven access to your bank account and savings and all that kind of stuff right but they did not deliver on anything that they said right. This is why you got to really be careful, especially with like being a massive like company like the Beam Financial one is because like they blatantly lied and misled their customers, right? 
Because it'd be one thing if they actually did deliver on the 24-7 access and the 1%, but then over time, they had to like let people know like, hey, we can no longer offer you a 1% interest rate. We can only offer you now a 0.9 interest rate or now a 0.5 interest rate, right? Like, where they would like keep letting the person know like, hey, we originally could offer 1%, but things change. Rates changed, and now we can only offer nine, like 0.9, 0.8%, or even just 0.04%, right? But if they were like open about that, because like Ally Bank did this, a lot of other online banks did this, where they're like not brick and mortar, and that allowed the customers to have the option, like, hey, do I want to stick with this company? Do I want to keep the money within this company? But they obviously blatantly disregarded this whole situation and lied to their customers. Now, the complaint also alleges that Beam would stop paying interest on funds that customers requested to withdraw, but then would re- would not return their money for weeks or months afterward. Now, that's crazy, right? Like, they have to deliver money on time. They have to give the people, their customers money on time because then you get into a situation okay well is this now a scam like straight up a scam like could this be potentially a almost a ponzi scheme right where there's actually not a product at all not a service at all and they're just trying to funnel money more into it into their business and just keep on getting more money more money recruit more people get more money recruit more people get more money because if that's the case, that's really serious and can be very damaging to a lot of people because then this also means that potentially a lot of their customers may never get their money back, right? Which is a very scary situation because let's say that you're testing out an online bank, right? And you just so decided to check out Beam and you put down 10, 20, maybe even 100 grand into this app because it gave you a 1% interest rate, which is better than a brick and mortar bank account. Then they don't end up giving you your money ever again. Like, that's just crazy. That is so scary to see that this could potentially happen to someone or might have already happened to someone, right? This is also kind of like something similar to like the whole, uh, BitConnect fiasco, right? Where they were offering crazy returns by just putting the money in there. And that's all you had to do. And you could like double your money kind of thing. Obviously, this isn't the same interest rate claims. But still, at the same time, it's scary, right? Because people are sometimes willing to drop a lot of money. Some people are like, imagine if you're like, halfway through like an investment and you just wanted to park your money quickly for a nice 1% interest rate and you could have put like a million dollars in there, right? This could affect a lot of people and people could have lost a lot of money. They could have easily have lost their life savings if the bank is still not giving them their money. So a spokeswoman for Beam declined to respond to the substance of the FTC complaint but told CNBC in an email that the company is making progress getting people their money back. But I gotta say, 
Again, this is scary. It should not be a hassle or an issue for a bank or a savings app to give the people their money back, right? Because what on earth are you doing with their money that you can't immediately give their money back when they request it? Like to me, that makes no sense. How can a app claim to be like a banking app or a financial app where they can't even deliver on what they promised their customers. We have processed 98% of customer funds who were impacted, the statement said. Well, you should have processed 100% of customer funds who were impacted, right? Because this is the problem. Like how many... Like, customer funds are you actually not dealing with, right? Because, again, this could be potentially people's life savings. Like, this isn't like a simple, like, product that you sell and people just maybe not like your product. This is potentially a life savings situation that might have lost the whole thing, right? It's, like, basically the same thing as if you put, like, a hundred grand into Robinhood to invest into stocks and then... Basically, they just deleted your account and they just don't give you your money, right? Like, it'd be a pretty big deal, right? Separately, some customers who previously complained about withdrawal requests going unheeded for months told CNBC that their withdrawals were partially fulfilled on Wednesday, which again is scary because why are they only partially fulfilling their withdrawals, right? Like, where is all that money? Like, think about that. Imagine if you collected $10 million from customers, right? Where you are basically using it for like a saving situation. Or no, no, let's put it this way. Let's say that you're a charity, right? And you got donated $10 million, right? Well, if a year passes and people want to know where that money went... Because no cause has been done, nothing's been done, no other like programs or wells were built or whatever causes that you might have claimed to do in your charity, people are asking, where's the money, right? So this is kind of like the same thing. It's like, where on earth did the money go, right? Why are you only partially fulfilling these withdrawal requests? Like, this is so scary. And like, if you're creating like some sort of bank account, where you're holding people's money, like their personal money, you got to be so careful with this stuff. Like, you don't want to ruin people's lives by potentially losing their life savings. Now, San Diego marketing executive Steve Wolf, who attempted to withdraw his entire $15,000 account, balance beginning this summer said he received a $10,000 deposit into his bank account. There is no word about the remaining $5,000. Josh Allen of Colorado said his bank notified him of a pending deposit of more than $7,800 from Beam. In his complaint, the FTC said getting funds returned often required extreme action on the part of customers. In numerous instances, consumers have received their money only after telling defendants 
that they are reporting the problem to government regulatory or law enforcement officials or alternatively suggesting they intend to begin legal action, the complaint said. In addition to the FTC complaint, Florida depositor Frederick Chang last week filed a proposed class action suit on behalf of Beam's customers. The company claims to have nearly 187,000 subscribers through a source close to the firm says the number of actual accounts may be closer to $30,000. Three of Beam vendors, Huntington National Bank, which has custody of $2.4 million in Beam deposits, and transaction processing firms Dwala and Stable Custody Group have sued Beam in an Ohio court demanding that the company provide them the information necessary to return customers' funds. The Beam spokeswoman said the company is working with Dwala to resolve any outstanding requests that the company provide them the information. Oh, no, I just, wow, I completely screwed that one up. But either way, like, again, why is this such a big hassle for them to actually do, right? Why is this a big issue for them to give the people the money back that want to withdraw their money, right? It's not like they bought a product. They put their money into like a savings account, right? They put their money into a bank account, okay? It's completely different than buying some sort of product. Like it's literally their money and they should get their money. This is so crazy to me. It's like, how can a business, how can a bank, bank with, you know, air quotes, actually function like this, right? And I'm shocked that they're not getting even sued even more, right? Like this is like really serious stuff if you really think about it. Because think about it. Think about potentially 30,000 accounts with at least $10,000 in each of them, just average, right? That's a crazy amount of money, right? Like this isn't a small amount of money that we're talking about. But check out fortyandbox.com to master your money, personal finance lessons and courses, want to make money online, learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. You can get a free stock worth up to $500 by joining Robinhood and linking a bank account. You can automate your investing with Acorns, where they round up your everyday purchases to the next dollar, and then auto-invest that based off your risk tolerance, which is pretty awesome. You could get a small amount of free Bitcoin by joining Coinbase and investing $100 into a cryptocurrency. The new Google Pay app is an all-in-one mobile bank, finance tracker, and contactless payment service. So Google Pay has launched a new version of its Android app ahead of the launch of its Plex banking service in 2021. The replacement app, which is now live in the Google Play Store, has been completely rewritten in Flutter. Google's Dart-based development kit And we got our first look at the new design when India replaced the Google Tez app with a retooled Google Pay. And it was announced today after a series of teasers on Twitter with a live stream. And in fact, I actually got the notification on my phone to actually check out the brand new version of Google Pay. And to be frank, just, you know, before I get like deep into this thing, into this episode, 
it honestly looked pretty good. It looked, it looked pretty convenient. Is the best way to put it, right? Like if you're someone who is a little bit more tech savvy, and you like the convenience of you know just using Google Pay and kind of stuff, I could see people using it as a a full actual like personal finance app, like an actual mobile bank, because. Google, with its infrastructure, can make things almost so seamless, right? When it comes to utility apps, they basically are the best, right? So I can see the security of Google, the security of Google Pay, the security of everything combined into their own banking app is pretty amazing. Now, personally, it's a little bit also scary that, you know, potentially Google could actually have their actually own bank i mean obviously they're not going to be using their own bank it's not going to be like google bank but at the same time they're getting into a space that potentially they might end up doing that in the future you never know right because i mean google's kind of like taking over the world and is one of the most powerful companies in the world so just keep that in mind like how much do you want to rely on one company for all your day, daily tasks, right? But if you want to keep things kind of like seamless, it's like perfect, right? So we'll start with the bad news because there's not much of it. The new version of Google Pay can only be used on one device at a time. If you attempt to log in on a second device, you get a warning telling you that the account is in use on another device. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing because the increased scope of the app warrants extra security. The second, I don't want to say that because that could just translate into something weird in Google Translate. Change is that changing your NFC payment source has been put behind a button in the top right of the screen, so it's not as fluid as it was before. The good news is that the changes are the result of a massive upscaling of Google Pay and its capabilities. So the new version goes way beyond contactless payments. There's now an option to pay friends and family members based on your contact list. You can search for local retailers who accept Google Pay and in some cases order a meal directly from the app. Now you can view all your receipts and orders with the app now integrated with Google Photos, allowing you to pull in any paper receipts you photographed, which is actually probably one of the most amazing things ever, right? So that you can just basically get rid of your receipts, right? So this is on top of the existing order pull through from Gmail. So Google Pay will also be able to store discount codes and automatically apply them, target Burger King and Etsy are amongst the first to join the scheme. Some car perks will let you park and pay from the app, whilst participating gas stations will let you pay for your fuel without visiting the cashier, which is always a nice thing. It also looks like this function also ties into Google Assistant. Based on the APK teardown we analyzed earlier this in this year, meanwhile, if you're at a restaurant, you can create a group, split the bill, or keep track of who owes for their share. So the group feature is also ideal for roommates to keep their financial affairs in one place. Another integration is with Played. 
a fintech service that acts as a middleman, allowing you to interact with your bank accounts, view balances, make payments, and so on directly from within Google Pay. When international rollout begins, functionality will vary from country to country, such as in the UK where the open banking standard means that a partner app won't actually be necessary. All these new functions are a mere curtain raiser to the star attraction, the company's Plex bank account service, launching in 2021. At launch, Plex accounts, as in Google Plex, right, will be offered by nine partner banks. Rather than banking with Google, which as you may have noticed, isn't a bank, you have an account with the partner bank offering deep integration with Google Pay. So the debit card will say Google, of course, and Google Pay will become your banking app, putting it in direct competition with other digital first banks such as Revolut, Curve, and N26. So Google Plex accounts will be free to open without monthly fees, offer fee-free overdrafts, and free ATM withdrawals in network. Two partner banks, Citi and Stanford Credit Union, have opened their wait list for the service and sign up today and you'll be sent a debit card when the service goes live. Now this is the thing, right? If you want things pretty simple and you live kind of like a simple life, I can see how Google Plex, like a Google Plex account, would actually be pretty much perfect for you. Because you may not be aware of this, right? Depending on how long you've had your bank account. But a lot of bank accounts actually charge you a fee to open a bank account. They usually charge you monthly fees unless you have a certain amount of transactions going through it or a certain monthly retained balance, right? And a lot of them offer, well, a lot of them have fees and massive fees for overdrafts and a lot of them charge you something for ATM withdrawals, right? So just keep that in mind. There's a lot of banks that charge you a lot of money over time on a lot of different facets. So this alone is actually a good enough reason for many people to try this out, right? So the app experience includes regular spending reports, the ability to categorize spending types, and search by retailer, category, or date. Any one of these features would have been a significant update for Google Pay. As it is, this is a complete reinvention of the service and a huge leap forward for digital banking. And to celebrate, the new app has a new logo in keeping with Google's recent form of four color monstrosities. Now this one looks like Camus leather, though apparently it's a wallet. The new Google Pay app is now available in the Play Store for US users only, which you could I'm not gonna put like a link below in like the description. Just go to like your Google Play Store or actually no, what's even better, which is what I ended up doing, right? Because I don't necessarily like to click too many links. If you go to your Google Pay app on your phone, like if you're already using it or if you already have it, which if you have an Android, you already have it, even if you didn't create nothing, 
you can actually just click it and it will actually suggest you like, hey, come check out the new Google Pay app, right? Like it would literally tell you like, hey, come check us out on the Google Play Store and download the new version. And you can literally do that and check it out. International rollout will come later. And in the meantime, the version of Google Pay in your app store is the right one for you. In the U.S., the old version is still available as Google Pay, old, but will nag you to switch to the new one. Like I said, it will literally tell you, like, hey, go check out the new one. Alternatively, you can download the new app from APK Mirror. And in case you were wondering, it's also available on iOS because you know Google is going to try to make some money everywhere regardless of what phone it's actually on. So you can check out 40inbox.com to master your money, personal finance lessons and courses, want to make money online, learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. Now you can also get a free stock worth up to $500 by joining Robinhood and linking a bank account. You could automate your investing with Acorns down below. And the cool thing about Acorns, which I got to say, this is really for someone who wants to have fun while just like spending money because I'm a person personally who I do not like to spend money on anything, right? But having an app like Acorns kind of makes me a little bit more comfortable spending money because it rounds up your everyday purchases to the very next dollar and then invest that difference. So basically, let's say that you spend a dollar and 50 cents, right? Well, it'll round it up to two dollars and then use that 50 cents as an investment on your behalf, depending on your risk tolerance. So keep that in mind. It's a pretty fun thing to do. And you could just click and see like, oh, my account grew like 2% today. Oh, my account is on like track for a 10% month, right? Like it's a pretty cool thing to check out. Now you could also get a small amount of free Bitcoin by joining Coinbase and investing $100 into cryptocurrency. And we'll see you in future episodes. Employees who choose to work remotely should pay a tax to help those workers on low incomes who cannot set a research note from Douche Bank. I gotta say, I stumbled onto this uh, story, which I found uh, pretty crazy, right? So, like, here's the thing. People who are not able to work at home, it's perfectly understandable that you're struggling, right? And that's for everyone, right? A lot of people are not able to work at home, right? People who are working construction jobs, people who are teachers, people who are basically almost nearly every single job, right? But there are a lot of people who are able to work at home as well, right? But I stumbled onto this thing and it's crazy, right? Because you cannot sustain something like this, right? You cannot sustain being able to pay for people who could technically work, but their places are just locked down, right? Like, it's, it's so crazy, but let's get into it, right? So according to the research report titled, What We Must Do to Rebuild, employees who work from home receive immediate financial benefits, including reduced costs for travel, food, and clothing. 
The report suggests the employer would pay the tax if it does not provide the worker with a permanent desk. Otherwise, the employee would pay the tax. Our calculations suggest the amounts raised could fund material income subsidies for low-income earners who are unable to work remotely and thus assume more old economy and health risks. Jim Reed, global head of fundamental credit strategy and thematic research at Deutsche Bank, said in the report. All right, again. The uh, the idea might sound okay, in practice, no, right? In practice, this is never a good idea. In practice, this will never work, right? Because you got to think about it like this, right? Let's say that someone had student loans, right? And let's say it was like fifty thousand dollars of student loans. Right, that's like asking someone who chose to go to a different school that was cheaper, right, where they did not have to take student loans for, telling that person that they must pay the other person's student loans, even though they had no impact on what that person decided to do, and no impact as. Deciding as to what that school decided to charge them, right? Like that person had no impact and no involvement into what this other person' life situation is. So why would this person who chose to go to a cheap school so that they could end up paying cash for college, like a community college, be required to pay for someone who ended up going to like a private school for? A large amount of school debt, like it, it doesn't make sense, right? Like in practice, it doesn't make sense, and no one's really going to agree to it, right? When they really like think about it, it's like this does not make sense, right? And why would an employer have to pay for people who is not an employee of theirs to actually, you know, pay for them to survive, right? Again. I don't think anyone should be like put like like basically left behind if they have like no work no job kind of thing, because we do have things in place to assist people temporarily to get them back on their feet, and if a government is going to basically block anyone from working, they have to pay them. But you also got to keep in mind just because they're paying people, if they were to actually. Successfully pass bills to pay people that are not working. You have to think about something. Eventually, that money is going to be basically worthless because if no one's working, if no one's producing anything, and no one's selling anything, what good is that money even for if no one's actually able to do anything with it? Right. So just keep that in mind. There's so many negatives to this situation. Like it. It just doesn't make sense at all. So, on average, an average salary of fifty-five thousand dollars at a tax rate of five percent, Deutsche Bank estimate estimates that the average person would pay more than ten dollars a day in tax and raise a total of forty-eight billion dollars a year. Right? 
Now, here's the thing that you also got to think about too. Okay, an added $10 a day in tax. Think about that. Let's just take the average days in a month, right? So 30 days, that's $300 a day extra that people are going to have to pay per month for other people. Think about that, right? The majority of the United States population is living paycheck to paycheck. What makes them think that people are going to be able to handle a tax that tax on, you know, basically $10 a day on average, right? When people are living paycheck to paycheck, right? Like that's literally a car payment. That is literally a utility bill, right? That is an insert, like a health insurance payment. Like it's not a low amount of money, right? Now, the report says that the tax should only apply outside times when the government advises people to work from home, as has happened during the pandemic. But again, why would this be put onto specifically people who are able to work at home, right? If the government is, you know, technically forcing people to stay at home, and basically not work, right? Because, you know, if they can't, right? They got to pay them. But at that point, the government doesn't actually have any money and they're actually using everybody's money, right? Even the people who are not even working. So it's just crazy when you think about it. It's like, it's just such a flawed system on so many levels. So the tax should also exclude low-income workers and the self-employed, which, of course, you know that they're not going to... If they were to pass something like this, you'd know that they would actually include basically everyone because that's the only way that they could pretty much afford to do something like this. And Deutsche Bank estimates that the proportion of Americans who work from home during the pandemic surged to 56%. So the sudden shift to work from home means that for the first time in history, a big chunk of people have disconnected themselves from the face-to-face world yet are still leading a full economic life, said researcher Luke Templeman in the report. That means remote workers are contributing less to the infrastructure of the economy while still receiving its benefits. And I do not like this statement at all for quite a few reasons, right? Just because someone is not paying for gas every single day, just because someone is not paying for like their coffee every single day, right? Doesn't mean that they're not contributing to the infrastructure of the economy, right? They could be buying things online. They could be buying things from like Grubhub or something like that. Right? They could still be doing an Uber. They could still be going to places. Right? They could still be investing into things. Right? They could still be a consumer. They could be an investor. Right? They could just potentially even hire someone. Right? As like an assistant. Assistant. So this statement I don't really like because it basically puts down people who are able to work at home. Because the thing is, if you're able to work at home... That's amazing and props to you, right? Because here's the thing. Have you ever thought about it in this way? If you could work for home, right? Do you know what the number one benefit 
would be if you could work from home, it's not the money, it's not the freedom, it's not the gas money that you would save, it's not all this other stuff, right? The freedom to do a lot of stuff that you can, you can meditate, all this sort of stuff, right? No. The number one benefit for working at home is that you could use your own bathroom when you decide to go to the bathroom, right? I know, you know, potty humor, but think about it for a second, right? That is the biggest benefit for working at home because you don't have to like deal with companies who use like really, really cheap toilet paper, right? You don't have to deal with anything like that. You could be like, oh, you know what? I think I got to go number one right now. Yeah, I just go number one right now. It's like, that's the biggest benefit, right? Heck, that would actually probably be worth the whole tax thing. Now that I think about it. But at the same time, again, I saw this and I thought it was kind of crazy because like, what, people who are lucky enough and chose a job or applied to a job and got hired in a job that didn't require them to work at home should be paying other people who applied to other different types of jobs. Like it's, like, it's not their responsibility, right? It's not their responsibility to pay for other people, period, right? And for something like a bank to, like, even suggest something like this, it's just crazy to me, right? It's like, like, no, right? Like, just no. Like, this is not okay. Check out 40 to master your money. Personal finance lessons and courses. Want to make money online? Learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. Now, if you want, you could get a free stock worth up to $500 by joining Robinhood and linking a bank account. And you can automate your investing with Acorns. And you could get a free, well, basically a small amount of Bitcoin by joining Coinbase and investing $100 into cryptocurrency. Apparently, Joe Biden is getting a little bit impatient. So Joe Biden said Wednesday that it's fully within the authority of the General Services Administration, the GSA, to recognize him as the president-elect in order to empower a smooth transition process, even as President Trump apparently refuses to concede defeat and blocks his rival from critical transition resources. So speaking to a panel of healthcare workers, Biden made the case that the GSA, which is tasked with ascertaining a victor in the presidential election, needs to determine only that he is the apparent winner. Biden said there's no reason for the GSA to wait until the states or Congress certifies the election and declares him the official winner. One of the problems we're having now is the failure of the administration to recognize, Biden said. The law says that the General Services Administration has a person who recognizes who the winner is, and then they have access to all the data and information the government possesses to be prepared. It doesn't require there to be an absolute winner. It says the apparent winner. Now, I will say this. 
Even though it does seem Joe Biden will become president, the issue is you really can't have a clean transition based off so many different things popping up around the country, right? Especially dealing with this election. And this election was so close that, of course, people are going to feel one way or another, whether they're on the left or they're on the right. So I think the best thing in this situation is to wait for things to be certified for people. If they want to investigate, feel free to investigate kind of thing, right? Because you want all the stones turned over, right? So that there could be very little things to say about whether or not Joe Biden became president completely, right? Like, like, you want this transition to be as clean cut as possible, right? And technically speaking, President Trump has the legal right to contest a lot of things, right? Legally speaking, he has the right to do it, right? So the best thing to do is wait for the certification, but to make sure whether side you're on or either side that they should basically invest anything that they can so that when all is said and done, people can't pull something like the 2016 thing claiming that Trump was working for, you know, the Russians or something, right? And basically lied blatantly for multiple years over that whole situation, right? Like you want this to be clean cut in the end. You want this to be clear, right? And if there are any sort of things that are kind of sketchy, you want to investigate that stuff and figure this stuff out and then be like, okay, you know what? We discovered some stuff. We didn't find enough anything to like potentially change the outcome. And okay, Joe Biden wins. Or they do find something and then Trump somehow pulls something out of a hat and ends up winning, right? So the thing is, you need to make this clean cut as possible as clean cut as possible, right? It would have been amazing if one person won by like a complete landslide where nobody would have to be dealing with this kind of stuff. But because it was so close and because so many people are going over back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and how early on that the media tried to call it for Biden, kind of sketchy. Right, all the like events that led up to this election, kind of sketchy, right? And now the things that are going throughout it, kind of sketchy still, right? So, just try to make it as clean cut as possible. So, GSA administrator Emily Murphy, who was appointed by Trump, has so far refused to ascertain Biden as the winner, even though he leads by tens of thousands of votes in key battleground states and is expected to win the Electoral College by a comfortable margin. And again, we'll see about that. So Trump is disputing the outcome, potentially making baseless allegations of widespread and systematic fraud, but I think according to the actual documents, they're not necessarily claiming of fraud, they're claiming of basically mishandling of the whole basically voter process 
right? So it's not necessarily, I think, worded as fraud per se. So that's also something to really factor into the thing. So the Trump campaign is paying for a recount in some counties in Wisconsin where Trump trails Biden by 20,000 votes. They'll also likely request a recount in Georgia where Trump trails by about 13,000 votes. But it is extremely unlikely that those legal challenges or recounts will change the outcome and Democrats are furious at the Trump administration for impeding the transition. But when you think about it, I mean, this is like a left versus right situation. No matter what was going to happen, people are going to get mad. Because the GSA has declined to ascertain Biden as the winner, the president-elect cannot access government officials or national security briefings. Biden's team has warned that Trump is endangering national security by refusing to give the incoming administration access to sensitive intelligence information. Again, this is the thing. It has not been official yet that Biden is the new administration. So technically speaking, it could actually be a national security risk by giving him this information when he's not officially certified as the president-elect. So, I mean, this is basically like a weird word game, but when it comes down to it, technically speaking, he is not the president-elect yet. And Biden has been warning that the transition delays will hurt the nation's efforts to distribute a coronavirus vaccine in a timely fashion, which should actually have no effect as to what's going on with the uh, vaccine. The president-elect has said that more people may die because he's been blocked from coordinating the vaccine rollout and other public health measures with Trump's team, which, again, doesn't make any sense. And on Wednesday, Biden said the delays could set the vaccine distribution back by weeks or months, which I still say this doesn't really make much sense because Trump's still president for quite a few months, right? Like, I mean, Trump is still literally president for a few months. And if a vaccine comes out very soon, that would have no impact whatsoever if Biden were to become the new president. So we've been unable to access, get access to the kinds of things we need to know about the death of stockpiles, and we know that there's not much at all, Biden said. There's a whole lot of things we just don't have available to us, he added. So unless it's made available to us soon, we'll be behind by weeks or months to put together the initiative relating to the biggest problem we have with two drug companies coming along and finding 95% effectiveness efficiency in the vaccines, which is enormous promise. But according to a recent, uh, I believe, Joe Rogan podcast, what was interesting is that they were talking about the whole vaccine thing, the two potential vaccines and what was interesting is that basically to summarize it that the two vaccines could be useful to uh, limiting the the potential uh, chances of catching COVID but not necessarily decreasing the amount of uh, serious outcomes of COVID right? Although one of them might have a little bit more promise in that factor, 
but at the same time, morbidly, basically death, right, could still technically be the same. So that's also pretty interesting to think about too. You could check out 40inbox.com to master your money, personal finance lessons and courses. Want to make money online? Learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. And you can get a free stock worth up to $500 by joining Robinhood and linking a bank account. You can automate your investing with Acorns where they just round up to the very next dollar and invest the difference based off your risk tolerance. And you can get a small amount of free Bitcoin by joining Coinbase and investing $100 into cryptocurrency. 